you have your Bibles today, would you take them and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 22? We've been uh, this Christmas season going through a few select passages in the book of Genesis. As we seek to focus our attention in the eyes of our heart onto our Savior at Christmas and to, to look towards Him with eager expectation and reverence, I think it's good for us to go back to the book of Genesis and to see how it teaches us, how it not only is laying the foundations for our faith and, and for all that we uh, believe and what we know about God and who He is and how He relates to His people, but it's also a wonderful book that sort of begins to lay the foundation for Christ, that begins to he teaches us who Christ would be and what work He would accomplish. And there's a lot of passages in the book of Genesis that are, are crucial for doing that, but perhaps none of them are quite so rich as chapter 22. None of them are quite so rich as this story that tells of the testing of Abraham's faith with the command from the Lord to sacrifice his son Isaac. There are few places in the book of Genesis that point so clearly and teach us so well about the character and the work of Jesus Christ and foreshadowing why he would come and what he would do. There is none in Genesis that so plainly teach the truth of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by dying in the place of another. That's the big picture truth that we see in this chapter. It's one of the richest in Genesis for showing us uh, the way of the cross and the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you if you're able, would you join me today in standing for the reading of God's word? This is Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have revealed to us your holy, inerrant, inspired word, which is perfect, which is able to make us wise unto salvation, which is useful to draw us to Christ, to form us into his image, to impress your grace upon our hearts, to give us this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory. And Father, we pray that uh, by the power of your Spirit, you will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might truly see Christ portrayed in his word, that we will not miss him as he's given to us here. Lord, we give you thanks and praise in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The main point of this passage is stated very plainly in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. In doing so, he he gives us the main lesson of this story. The lesson is the Lord will provide. And as such, the main point of this passage is primarily what God does. And the main character in this passage is God. This is a passage that is probably well known to many of us, particularly if you grew up in church, you've heard this story before, and perhaps you've heard it uh, taught or preached with emphasis really on on Abraham. Isn't that how we often read it? He's the emphasis, and what we need to learn is, is to be more like Abraham. He demonstrates great faith in this passage. Perhaps the sacrifice of his son is emphasized, his faith in the midst of trials, perhaps you've been asked to think, what are the Isaacs in your life? What are those things that the Lord is asking you to sacrifice as a test of your obedience to demonstrate your faith in God? And certainly we want to look at this passage and we say, yes, Abraham's faith is notable. And it it is worthy of our attention. In fact, the New Testament will point us to Abraham's faith as a model. And we'll look at that also. But if, if that's as far as we get, If we only stop with Abraham, then we've missed the point of this passage. If we don't get to the Lord and his character and how trustworthy he is so that we can trust him and that God himself is revealed in this story as the one who provides the lamb for sacrifice, then Abraham's faith won't do us any good if we don't get to the one who his faith is in. James Boyce, a great preacher, said, The truth of the matter is that Abraham's near sacrifice of his son Isaac is pageant and prophecy of the actual sacrifice by God of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Calvary. And so if we read this passage and and we don't have our eyes drawn to the one true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, then we miss the main point of this passage. We miss everything that it's trying to teach us. He says this is pageant and it's prophecy that points us to the sacrifice of another Lamb of God the true Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is a passage about God who provides the sacrifice for his people. And so just to break it up into two points today, we see first the nature of what faith is, and we see the object of our true faith. The nature of faith, the object of faith. First, it is about Abraham. We do see the testing of Abraham's faith in this passage. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, immediately we know something in reading this passage that Abraham does not know. Right? We know immediately that this is a test. That God is going to be testing Abraham to see the quality of his faith. He's going to be putting him through this trial as a means of proving his faith. It's not unlike the story of Job. We know from the outset that there's something going on in the divine realm that, that Job couldn't see. He did not know about this conversation between God and the tempter at the beginning. He just saw the trials that were coming upon him. And so it is with Abraham. We have no indication that Abraham knows at the outset that this is God testing Abraham. All he has is the command from the Lord. And so immediately we know something, that it says God tested Abraham. God is testing him. It's not tempting. Some of the old versions say that God tempts Abraham as though God were trying to trip him up a little bit. And that's not what it's saying. He's testing him. He's trying to create a teachable moment for Abraham. He's putting him into this difficult situation. He's leading him through what we would call a a very dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death, in order to test the quality of Abraham's faith. Abraham does not know that. And that should be a good reminder to us. When we go into trials, when the Lord begins to walk with us through difficult things in life, there may well be going, maybe things going on behind the scenes that we are simply not aware of. God may have purposes in our trials that we're not privy to. It happened to Abraham. It happened to Job. Both those men suffered great ordeals in their lives and had no idea what God was up to at the beginning of the story. And so it may very well be with us. God may have purposes in our trials that we simply do not know and we may never know. But to know that, to have that fact in mind is something that can help our faith, that can help our hearts, not to doubt but to trust. So it says, after these things... God tested Abraham. Now, we have to remember what those things are because the background is so important to this story. After these things, he began to test him. Remember the story of Abraham's life here. We know the many promises that God has made to Abraham. We know that he promised Abraham that he was going to take him from Ur of the Chaldeans and he brought him into the land that he would show him, where he would give him every place where he would set his foot, that he would make his descendants to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. These magnificent promises that came from the Lord. He had the promise that he was going to be the father of many nations, and that promise when he was 75 years old. We know that story of Abraham, how he struggled to believe that at 75 years old the Lord was going to give him children. And for all these years now, Abraham, coming on 100 years old since his early 70s, he'd only had the one son, Ishmael, not even a, a true son. But when Abram was 99 years old, God appeared to him again. He changed his name from Abram, meaning father of many, to Abraham, meaning father of a great multitude. And he repeated that promise to him again. 99 years old, he still didn't have a son. God repeated that promise. You remember what Abraham said he was doubtful that that could possibly work and he 
he begged God, Lord, may this promise be fulfilled through Ishmael. God said, no. No, it shall be through your own son. It will be through Isaac. Laughter, that child that shall come from Abraham and Sarah, who would yet be born to Sarah when she was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 years old. It was Isaac who was the child of promise. There was no doubt about that. Everything rested on Isaac. He was the one through whom God's promises would be yes and amen to Abraham. That is the place where Abraham's hopes for God's promises rested. And after these things, God comes to him and says, Abraham, take Isaac, your son, who does not yet have any children of his own, that line is not continuing, and sacrifice him as an offering to the Lord. There is the locus of this test that God is bringing on Abraham. Isaac is the, the locus of that promise. It all depends on his offspring. He is the one through whom that promise would be reckoned. He's the one through whom that line was supposed to go. And now the Lord is telling him, sacrifice your only son. And for us, we hear that and we immediately think, almost all of us will think, that sounds really bizarre. How could God even do that? How could a God who is good and upright ask Abraham to commit sacrifice, human sacrifice, child sacrifice, his own child to offer him up to the Lord? Is God really a God who does that? And it's even crazier when we realize that Abraham doesn't even argue with him. He just does it. Early the next morning, he just gets up, packs his bags. Does he not see any problem with that? He's, he's just going to do it. He just goes. Now, some of the problems that, that we have in our mind when we read a text like this are, are simply a, a result of our culture that we live in, of our sort of the background of our lives, we know that God is not a God of child sacrifice. And so we approach it from that position, and, and this sounds a little bit weird. But we have to recognize, in Abraham's day, they also would have found this text very weird, but for a totally different reason. See, in Abraham's day, you know, that's who the gods were. They were often angry. They were often vindictive. They often required things of you that you did not want to do and possibly could not do. They they could demand sacrifice at the drop of a hat. You know, Abraham was living in a world that did not share his Christian convictions. I mean, remember, he and his family were the only ones who knew God at this point. There was no Christian culture that shaped the expectations. They lived in a pagan land who believed in pagan gods. And so the fact that God would tell Abraham to offer a sacrifice of his son probably wouldn't have been noteworthy to anybody you know what would have been really surprising to everybody? Is that this God is a God who would stop Abraham from offering his son as a sacrifice and would himself provide a lamb for the sacrifice instead. See, they would have been equally baffled by this passage, but for the opposite reason. Not because God commanded him to offer a child sacrifice, but because God didn't follow through. Because they say, here is a God who himself provides the lamb for the offering. They would be baffled. What, what is going on? Why does God stop Abraham? As a God, he had every right to go through with that command. And yet, that gives the first picture of who God is. This God is different. This God is a God who does not ask you to sacrifice your son for him. But he is a God who himself will provide the sacrifice on your behalf. And see, I don't think it's only startling for people from Abraham's day or just for the ancients. 
I think there's, there's many people even in our culture today, in our century, in our city, who will think, when they think of religion or when they think of Christianity, probably their first thought is going to be that if you're a religious person, if you're a Christian person, if you're one of these, then what that means is you're a person who has to do things for God. They think of religion as doing good stuff for God, right? They think being a church person means you have to be willing to give up all sorts of fun things, right? That's not allowed. Probably, uh, you know, you have to give up all the good beverages. You have to give up all the good movies, all the good TV shows. They say if you're a religious person, their first thought is going to be about what you don't do, the sacrifices you have to make. That's how they think of religion. You have to give up your Sundays. You have to give up some of your money. It's all about sacrifices. What they are missing in that is that the very heart of the gospel is not about what God asks us to give to him. The very heart of the gospel is about what God has done for us. Even while we were yet sinners, even while we stood in, in totally worthy of his judgment and his wrath, God made a sacrifice for us so that we could be saved. See, that's why it, it, this passage would be startling to people today. We think of religion in terms of what we do for God. The gospel is completely different. The heart of what it means to be a Christian is to believe that God has offered his only son as a sacrifice for us in order that we might be saved. We did the sinning. God offers the sacrifice. I think a passage like this is just as countercultural for us today as it would have been for Abraham in his day. And you know, it's not just our culture. It's not just those who don't know Christ. I, I know that sometimes, even for us who are in the church, we can fall into these old habits of living where, where we are going about our life living as though that God simply demands things from us before he's willing to totally love us. That if we're not living sacrificially enough, perhaps he's going to withhold his blessings from us. Perhaps we just live with this unspoken conviction that, that we might know is wrong if we think it through, but that's the problem we don't think it through. We think of God as one who's holding out on us until we're fully committed. And that's what we see in this passage, a God who loves his people, provides for them when they have nothing in themselves to deserve it. But before we get to that provision pictured in this passage, we see Abraham's faith. Actually, we don't see Abraham's faith. Faith is invisible. You can't really see faith. You know what we see in this passage? Abraham's obedience. We can see his obedience. We don't see faith per se, but we see obedience, which is faith in action. Obedience is the fruit of faith. If you see someone who is obeying the Lord, you know that they believe the Lord. And if you have someone who believes the Lord, you can see that and you can know that because you will see them obeying. How do you know a person trusts the Lord? Well, it's someone who was willing to submit their life to his word. It's someone who's pursuing a life of obedience. It will be someone who hears what the Lord requires in his word, and even though that might be difficult, and even that, though that might require some real changes on our part, that person will not flinch because they trust the Lord. They trust that even though I may not understand how that could be better, nevertheless we trust that the Lord knows what he is saying in his word, he knows the human heart better than we do. And that's what we see from Abraham in this passage is unquestioning, unflinching obedience. God gives command and he does it. 
difficult a command as it is, almost stunningly difficult, we see the next verse, Abraham got up the early the next morning and he packed his bags. He cut the wood for the offering. He took his servants and Isaac with him and they simply went. Why would he do that? It's because he trusts the Lord. He trusts, he has faith in God and I believe that it, this picture exposes for us the true nature of what faith is, that this is faith. Faith is trusting God even when all the circumstances of life seem to be going wrong. Even when you look around your own life and you say, Lord, how could this be? Things just are not going well. Things are not falling into place. Everything seems difficult. And yet you trust the Lord. That's where, that's where your faith is truly being called upon. The kind of testing that is going to expose the nature of faith. That's why it says God tests Abraham. You never see the nature of a person's faith when life is easy and everything is going well. Their faith is tested when things are not going well, when they enter into challenges and trials and the Lord causes them to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There will be many people who will say that they believe in God until something bad happens. And then you'll hear words like, I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. Or I just can't believe in a God who fill in the blank, whatever it is, see, they have determined what God is and is not allowed to do. And when he uh, goes astray of their own standards, then they lose faith. See, the great challenge for us is to, to know the God of the Bible, to walk in fellowship and communion with him, to know his character, and to know how faithful he is, to know how trustworthy he is. What would Abraham have done in this situation if he was leaning on his own understanding? You see, in our experience, we sometimes experience a conflict between what God tells us to do or what we know is right from the Bible and what we think is best to do. We might prefer something over here. We think this would work out well, but, but there's a conflict because we know God says something different, and so that can be good for us because that will drive us back to the Scriptures to see, has God really said this? Abraham had even a, a more difficult conflict, didn't he? He had what God had promised and what God had said. Two things that come from the Lord that seemed, from all appearances, to be in conflict with each other. How could that promise, how could that, that promise that he's given of many generations, how could that be fulfilled if he sacrifices his son Isaac? And yet, <clears throat> we see the evidence that Abraham believes the Lord in this. He believes the Lord even in the face of this seeming contradiction. We see the evidence of it. Look at verse 5. We begin to see what must be going on in Abraham's mind. Verse 5, Abraham says to these young men who are his servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will go. I and the boy will worship. I and the boy will come back. See, it seems as though Abraham, even before he goes up to the top of that mountain to offer the sacrifice, he knows he's coming back with Isaac. We don't know how he, why he says that. We don't know what's going on in his mind, but he is confident there. He believes the Lord. He knows that Isaac is necessary. And so even if it requires God raising Isaac from the dead, he figures that's what God must be willing to do. God must have something in mind. 
we see his faith again in verse 8. Abraham says, see, here he gets this somewhat, must have been an awkward question from Isaac. Uh, Here's the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. How does he say that? He has no idea what God has in mind, but he knows the promises of God. He knows that God is a God who is faithful to his word. You see, James Boyce again points out Abraham only has two options here. First, he could conclude that God is simply untrustworthy. He's not consistent. He simply cannot be trusted with the important things in life because he's not consistent to his word. He's not faithful. Many people do conclude that, sadly. As soon as they enter the first difficulty of life, they just conclude, well, God can't be trusted. I can't give my life to him because I can't trust that he will treat it well. But Abraham knew better than that, didn't he? Here we see a picture of Abraham. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is in this passage. He's, he has to carry the wood, so he's probably at least in his teenage years, uh, which means Abraham has been walking with God for 35, 40 years, maybe more than that. He's been in fellowship with God. He's been relying on the promises of God. He has been one who has received already the impossible promise that he is going to have a son, and it happened. He knows that God is trustworthy, a man of his word. And so, if he's not going to conclude that God is untrustworthy, he simply has to conclude that God is greater than his own limited understanding. You see, he's, he's faced with this dilemma. He doesn't know how these things could both work out together. And yet he has to trust the Lord by concluding that God is somehow greater than his own finite mind. That God has something in mind. Somehow he's going to make a way through this. And and that's what Hebrews 11 makes so much of when it refers to Abraham's faith. This is what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. It doesn't say he, he was almost ready to offer up Isaac. He says he offered up Isaac. In his heart, he went through with this. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what Hebrews concludes. He says he had received this promise. He's a man of great faith. He's going to sacrifice the child of promise he concluded that God was able to raise the dead. He knew God was faithful to his word. And therefore, here's uh, Don Barnhouse, another uh, Presbyterian minister, concludes it this way. He says, It was easier for Abraham to believe that God would raise Isaac from the dead than to believe that God would not be faithful to his promises. He said he had never seen a resurrection before. That Such a thing had never happened in the entire history of the world. But, that is consistent with the character of God. To think that God would not be faithful to his promise, that is not consistent with the character of God. And so doubt may say it is foolish to believe God's word when everything looks opposite to it. Faith goes with what is consistent with God's character and his word. He says it this way, Doubt may say that this is foolish. There's never been a resurrection in the history of the world. That doesn't make any difference. A resurrection is compatible with the nature of God, but a contradiction is not compatible with the nature of God. You see, how we respond in the midst of our own trials and difficulties has everything to do with how well we know the character of God. 
How we respond will have everything to do with how well we know the character of God. That will determine, can we trust him in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death? Can we continue to walk with him even when the circumstances of our life do not look like what we think they should look like? Even when we don't understand what he could possibly be up to in bringing us through these difficult situations. If we know the character of God, if we've walked in fellowship with God, we can trust and have faith that God is able to do this. That God is able, even if it requires raising someone from the dead in order to bring good out of our trials, God can do it. Now, here's we begin to see not only the, the nature of Abraham's faith, but we begin to see the object of his faith and the God of our faith. When he says the Lord will provide a lamb, that's verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And here's one of the great verses of the faith in the Bible. Such a difficult position for Abraham, being asked by his son, where is the lamb for this sacrifice? We're walking up the mountain together. I see wood, I see the fire. Where is the lamb? And Abraham, presumably in great faith, says, God will provide the lamb for the offering. Think about how the this story would have been understood by Israelites. Think about how they would have read this. See, for us, we, we tend to read it just a little bit detached. We see this, we're, we see these characters, and we, see, we know that this is difficult for them, but it's from long ago and far away. But think of how an Israelite would have read this story. For them, this hit very close to home. They saw themselves in this story. They saw themselves, not only in their forefather Abraham, one of the fathers of the faith, but more importantly, they saw themselves in Isaac. Isaac was the lion through whom that promise was supposed to go. Any Israelite would have read this story and, and known from the beginning, if Isaac dies here, all of Israel dies. If Isaac is dead, the promises are done. If Isaac dies, that's all of us right there. Our whole nation, our whole family is bound up in Isaac at this point in history. He's the one through whom the promise is supposed to go. What's going to happen to him? That's where they saw themselves. They understand in this story, it's the whole nation that's under the sentence of death. That when that lamb is provided, that God is providing a substitute, not only for Isaac, that's a substitute for the whole nation of Israel. They understood that God had saved them from certain death on that mountain through providing his own lamb for the sacrifice. And this is the first time in the Bible we see this idea of a substitutionary atonement. That God provides a substitute sacrifice. Whereas the command was that Isaac should be offered on the altar, God will provide a substitute in this ram that's caught in the thicket. That the, the ram now will be sacrificed. He will die in order that Isaac, the child of promise, may live. God's people could not provide the offering that was required, but God could provide. And we see here this picture of Christ at the cross. That it's us, it's God's people who deserve to die. But God instead promises he will provide the lamb. He will provide the one for his own sacrifice in order that his people might be saved. We see how God describes Isaac. If we look back at verse 2, and in this command he says, Take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And we say, God, is that really necessary? You're really twisting the knife here, reminding Abraham how much he loves Isaac. And yet this 
is also pointing us ahead to remind us of Christ. When God at at Jesus' baptism would say, this is my son whom I love, his only son, that, that he would be the one who God would offer as the sacrifice. This is a passage, is a pageant that's meant to teach us about more than Abraham and Isaac in faith, but to point us to Christ. To point us to him. See, there's something, there's a, an untied together thread in this story. There's something that doesn't resolve at the end. What was the promise? What was the confidence, the faith of Abraham in verse 8? God will provide for himself the lamb. Does he provide a lamb? He does not, does he? Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. It's a different animal. His confidence was that the Lord would provide the lamb for the sacrifice, and that's not what is sacrificed. Moreover, Abraham names the mountain what the Lord will provide. Not the Lord has provided. He calls it the Lord will provide. There's this forward-looking memory of this passage that every time they go back, it's not that the mountain is called the Lord did provide once a long time ago, but the Lord will provide. That leaves this sort of open-ended, unresolved aspect to this story that that is waiting its final uh, closure later in the narrative. And I believe it is closed only in the Gospels when John the Baptist looks up. He sees Jesus. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The confidence and the point of this passage is that the Lord will provide not not merely this sacrifice for Isaac on top of Mount Moriah that one day, but the point of this passage is that the Lord will provide the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice who would be a substitute for every one of us, for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ this is the good news of the gospel for us at Christmas time, that our great anticipation is fulfilled in Christ. He is the one that, if not for Jesus Christ being offered as the substitute for us, everything would have been lost. The whole promise would have died. All the promises of God would have been all for naught. But we confess that in Jesus Christ, they are yes and amen. Because God provides the lamb for the offering. When Jesus in John 8 is talking to the Pharisees, he has this great line. He says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Very few commentators agree on what exactly he might have meant by that, but I wonder if he's talking about this passage. Because he says Abraham saw it. He saw the day of Christ, and he was glad in it. And I believe when we read a passage like this, We're meant to see more than simply the the magnitude of Abraham's faith, although that's a model for us to follow. But we are to see the day of Christ. We are to be glad. For the Lord has provided a sacrifice for our sins. That through our faith now in Christ as the substitute, we may be in union with Christ. We may live and not die. We may be saved from the wrath of God. And so we see ourselves... Yes, we're Abraham. We're learning to live by faith just as much as he was. We're also Isaac, condemned to die by the good and true word of God, as sinful people condemned to die, and yet God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for Jesus Christ.
We're thankful that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ, the one who fulfills all the promises, through whom we are given life and life to the full, through whom we may live in your presence without fear, uncondemned by our own sin, for he has paid the penalty. Lord, we ask, would you by your Spirit continue to fix our eyes on Christ? May we think on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Would you work this passage in our heart? Continue your patient work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.